I've never succumbed to um, computer games, but I have enjoyed playing on my computer. And one of the things I enjoy playing with is Google Earth. And uh, those of you who know Google Earth will know that when you click on it, you get uh, a view from space of this little small globe down there. And if you feed in um, England, it will zoom in on the heart of England, which it tells you is Coventry. And uh, if you click in, if you type in Sheffield, it comes in to the centre of Sheffield. You must find out where that is for yourself. And if you want to know what your neighbour's been getting up with, uh, up to with your fence on his side, you just click in your postcode and find out. It's quite remarkable. But the point about it is that it starts out there and it comes right down to where you want to go. If you could take Paul's letter to the Romans and feed it in, into some similar Google program, um, it would be helpful because the whole picture of Romans um, has been called the fullest and most comprehensive manifesto of the Christian gospel in the New Testament. Paul had never been to Rome. He wrote this letter to the Christians in Rome to set out for them the full sweep of the glorious news of Jesus Christ. And if we were to zoom in on the first four chapters of Romans, we would find him there spelling out how spiritually dead people can be forgiven, restored and brought to life through faith in Jesus, especially through his death for us on the cross. If we zoom across to chapters 5 to 8, we find Paul spelling out our Christian privilege, the privileges of those whom God has made new. And having set out the gospel and its roots in chapters 1 to 4, Paul goes on in chapters 5 to 8, to describe these fruits, the results of being justified. If we have been justified, what does it mean for us? What should we be experiencing as a result? That's why he starts chapter 5 with one of his great therefores, and we shall be looking at the end of chapter 5 on page 1132, if you would like to turn to it, that might be helpful. And um, at the beginning he says, since we have been justified by faith, let us enjoy peace with God. We have been justified. What does that mean? That's chapters 5 to 8. And we've been looking in these last three Sunday mornings at the um, first chunk of chapter 5 up to verse 11, and we come in to verse 12 this morning. I was interested to just check on what John Stott had been saying about Romans chapter 5 when he spoke at Keswick some years ago. Uh, one does things like that when you've been asked to preach on Romans 5. And I was interested to see what he, um, what he, how he stressed how important it is to move on with Paul from what he'd said about justification, that is, how we can be reckoned before God just as if I'd never sinned, to look at life after new birth, after we've been born again. He said this, there are too many of us who think and behave as if the gospel were good news of justification only and not good news of holiness and of heaven. We speak as if having come to God through Jesus Christ, we have arrived. Full stop. That is the finish. We talk as if we'd come to a dead end, as if there were no further road to travel. But that is not so. 
So with that in our minds, let's zoom in to verse 12. The whole of this passage, verses 12 to 17, is divided into two paragraphs. And the, the, the pith of what Paul is saying is um, in his summary at the end, in verse 17, and perversely, I'd ask you to look at the end before we look at the beginning. Uh, if you look at verse 17, we read, If by the trespass of the one man, that's Adam, sin reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So these two paragraphs, 12 to 17, are around these two men. The first man, Adam. The second man, Christ. Through Adam came death. Through Christ came grace and righteousness. And we'll unpack what all that means as we go through. So let's look first of all at Adam in verses 12 and uh, through to verse 14. He starts in verse 12, he doesn't even finish the sentence. He's so desperate to spell it all out and uh, he doesn't actually finish the sentence. Although if you look at verse 18 you get the idea of what he might have said had he completed it. But in verse 12, he tells us that Adam did two things which have affected us and the whole human race and the whole of creation. The first thing he says in verse 12, sin entered the world through one man. Adam's sin and disobedience has fouled it all up for all of us. Because of his disobedience, Sin is in our very nature. When we're born and our personality develops, we can choose between right and wrong. But there seems to be a power within us. And as we grow older, we are more and more conscious of it. The power within us that makes us veer towards what is wrong. That is sin within us. Thank you, Adam. And um, that's... Evidence. Um, it's not evident in Michaela at the moment. There she is, beautiful and um, looking absolutely wonderful, very well behaved. You wait till she's two. Uh, um, Janice and I have um, the great privilege of going through the terrible twos again as grandparents. And both our son and daughter have produced children who at the moment are two, so we know about the terrible twos. And there's pretty good evidence in the terrible twos for anything you need to doubt about original sin. It's all very clear. We are programmed to do what is wrong and it's very difficult for parents and sometimes grandparents, but thank goodness for Friday evenings and hand them back. Um, it's, uh, it's difficult to, to, uh, to, to cope with the rebelliousness of that stage. And then, of course, you wait until the teenage years. Sin is there endemic in our nature. And when Moses came along, Paul says, he gave us the law. And what that did was make clear to us when we are doing things which are wrong. He says, from Adam to Moses, 
sin existed, but when Moses came, he made it very clear what sin was like. So the first thing Adam achieved was to bring sin into the world. And the second thing he achieved was, because sin was in the world, death enters into the world. When God spoke to Adam in the Garden of Eden, he said, You must not eat of the fruit, for when you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's a huge debate in the commentaries as to whether Adam would have physically died had he not disobeyed God. And if you want to talk to me about that afterwards, um, we've got an hour or so, we could uh, spell it out. But from the text, we don't actually know whether he would have died or not, or whether physical death was just part of things, just as it is for the animal world. There's no moral judgment in the animal world. When I used to take infant prayers, I used to be asked questions like, will, I, will, my, rabbit, will my rabbit be in heaven? And you have to work out your theology of death uh, as far as the creation is concerned. But I don't want to get into physical death. That is part of it all. But um, I don't want to spell out or try to spell out um, whether Adam would have died uh, in a physical sense. But I know that from what Genesis says and from what the rest of the Bible says is the important fact that because Adam sinned, death entered into the world. And death was death to a relationship. The relationship between God and Adam. And spiritual death, that means the relationship is ended unless God does something about it. It's death is in our system because sin is in our system just as certainly as Polonium 2.10 was in Alex Litvinenko's system as we watched him die that horrible and lingering death this week. Paul put it this way in his letter to his friends at Corinth, As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But until you are in Christ, you're dead. Thank you, Adam. The hope of life was there right through the Old Testament, which is why we had that passage from Isaiah 9 as part of our reading. And there it was spelling out the Old Testament hope that to us a child will be born, to us a son will be given, and the government, authority or kingship, government, will be on his shoulder. So let's turn to the second paragraph, which is far more important for our purpose this morning. Remember verse 17, just as Adam's sin brought death into the world, Paul says, how much more has Jesus brought life? Through grace and righteousness, he's saying in verse 17, we shall reign in life through Jesus Christ. The comparison through the whole passage is stark. Look at it. Twice in verses 15 and 17, Paul talks about Adam 
and Christ and says how much more as he strains to describe the difference that Jesus can bring to those who trust in him. Adam's damage was bad enough, but Jesus turning the tables in offering life is on another plane altogether. And no less than five times in these three verses does Paul hammer home the word gift to describe what God has done for us in Christ, that we might have life. It's what Jesus prayed for in that great prayer in John's Gospel. I have come, he said, that they might have life Life in all its fullness. Verse 17 is the pivotal verse, and Paul talks about the means by which Jesus achieved this new life, and he talks about the results of that new life. So, first, the means. The first means was that of grace. You may ask why it was when God had bothered to make a world a perfect place, when he trusted Adam to share the responsibility for it, when he brought Adam into fellowship with the Trinitarian God, with all the love that was experienced within the person of the Trinity, why did he take into a relationship uh, Adam? Because he wanted to share his love. Because he wanted Adam, he wanted us, he wanted the whole human race to be part of that love and grace. But when Adam deliberately rebelled and said, I'll do it my way, God, I don't want a relationship with you, he ruined God's perfect plan, as we've seen. So why did God persevere? Why didn't he just do what so many of us would have done and zapped the world into oblivion? I'll tell you why he didn't. Because he loves us too much. We've already heard the words from John's Gospel, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes on him shall not perish but have eternal life. I guess that some of you, some of us, have been hurt and wounded by people whom we have trusted. Maybe we've been permanently scarred when someone we've trusted, maybe even shared our life with, has spurned our love and turned away and followed their own women fancy. How did we feel about that? You know. More than words can say. I can tell you how God feels about that when His love is spurned because he's told us in his word. In the Old Testament, Hosea loved his wife to bits. She kept going off and being unfaithful to him, selling herself as a prostitute. And time after time, Hosea would go and buy her back. Why? Because he loved her. He couldn't help it. He didn't want her back, part of him. But he loved her so much that he had to do it. And he went and he brought her back and he continued to shower his love on his unworthy wife. And through all Hosea's bitter experiences, and that's, I believe, why he was allowed to go through all that, he heard God saying to him, you know, that's how I feel about my people Israel. 
It was I who taught Israel to walk, he says in chapter 11. God says, I was taking them by the arms, but they didn't realize that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck. I bent down to feed them. How can I give you up, O Israel? How can I hand you over? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. The love of God for sinners, for you and for me. And this is God saying all this. He's bearing his soul. He's showing us his emotions. He's declaring his grace and love for his people. God has shown us the abundant provision of grace in what he did on the cross in Jesus. He made it possible for us to be forgiven, to start again, to live a new life, to be born again into God's own family and to live forever with him. We can stand in the presence of Almighty God with a relationship restored, with nothing to separate us. Righteousness is a legal term. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, the case is dismissed. We shall one day stand in his presence, full of his glory, because he promised that those he justified, he also glorified. So he's shown us his grace He's given us the new status as restored and forgiven sons and daughters. We're able to stand before him confident of his love and acceptance, assured that one day beyond death we shall reign with him and all those who have gone before, trusting in him, we shall reign with him in glory. But wait a minute. If grace and justification which is what we've been talking about, are the means, what is the result? Well, it's here in verse 17 at the end. Paul says, we shall reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. What does it mean to reign in life? This is the climax of the chapter. As I look around you this morning, are you reigning? Are you living the victorious Christian life? Do people look at you and see in you every part of you the kingship, the lordship of Christ? Are you reigning in life through Jesus? Are you on the victory side where no foe can daunt us and no fear can haunt us? With Christ within, the fight will win on the victory side. Is that where we are? It's where we should be. Because this verse says that Jesus has done all this for us and one of the things he's done for us is made it possible for us to reign in life here and now through the one man, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the risen and ascended Lord. He's won the victory. He's done it for us. By his resurrection, he's brought in his new kingdom. He is the king. That kingdom is guaranteed victory in the fight against sin and evil. We are reigning with him now, Paul says. Are we? 
Are we full of vibrant, victorious resurrection life? Is that the impression the world gets when it looks at the church? Triumphant love and grace reflecting the victory and glory of the risen Christ? What do you think? Just look at the newspapers, listen to the radio, listen to the television. I was driving through Sheffield four or five weeks ago and I tuned in to John Humphreys, who's um, familiar for his belligerent stance on today, every morning. But here he was subjecting himself to be interviewed, almost. And he was bearing his soul quite a lot as he interviewed the leaders of the Christian church, the Muslim faith, and the Jewish faith. The particular morning I'm thinking about, he was talking to the leader, one of the leaders of the Muslim faith. And he said, what is it that's special about you Muslims? I was brought up a Christian, I went to church. We Christians, we just are people who try to do the right things. We're establishment people, we try to live a good life. Not very well. But you Muslims, he said, why is it that you are prepared even to sacrifice yourself for your faith? It seems to affect every part of your life, he said. What's special about Islam that isn't there in Christianity, he said. What a damning indictment of Christians. What does it mean to reign in life? To reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Why don't we? Why are so many Christians living defeated lives full of fear and apparent failure? Why aren't we like Peter and John in Acts 4 who were hauled up in front of the rulers and accused of proclaiming the resurrection? Jesus is king, they said. Do you remember the verdict at the end of that trial in Acts chapter 4? The Sadducees who were trying them could not punish them. Why not? Because it says the quality of their victorious lives meant that the people praised God for what they had done. And what did the Sadducees, as they, through gritted teeth, realise that they had to let them go I'll tell you what they said. It's there in Acts chapter 4. It says, They took note that they had been with Jesus. When Jesus first chose his twelve disciples, according to Mark, he did two things. What were the two things? The first one that is that it, he called them to be with him. He took them apart to a desert place and spent time with them on their own. And then what did he do? He sent them out. That's what Luke, what Mark 3 says. He called them to be with him and to be sent out. But it was in that order May I very gently ask this morning whether we've got the order wrong. 
Whether as we rush around like headless chickens trying to do this, that and the other, running the church organisations, doing this, we're failing to get the priority right. Before we do all that, are we spending time to be with Jesus? When you spend time with someone you love, you more and more want to please them and show them their love in return. You're conscious of how much they love you and how much they want the best for you. And this leads to a kind of repentance, if you like. I didn't get that right, did I? What did I say to her? I want to get it better. I want to get it right. Is that your aim when you spend time alone with Jesus? Have you experienced that love and grace which God showers upon you as you come to him in repentance, returning in however feeble a way the love which he showed us in his grace on the cross, in the resurrection, and on countless times in our own experience? Repentance should be a response to the father love of God shown in Jesus. He loves you as his child. His spirit grieves as he watches us turn our backs on him and follow other gods of materialism, of worrying about what people will think, of worldly success, of dishonesty, of fouled up relationships. You can't repent until you're aware of, lo- of the love of the person you've offended. Jesus has won the battle for you and for the world. His kingdom is on now. In the light of that, we should repent so that we might know life in all its fullness. And you'll know that repentance means turning around and going the other way. It's what we do when we first come to Jesus, when we get out of the driving seat and hand over to him. But there's a deeper meaning. The Greek word is metanoia, Noia, knowledge. Meta, after, again. We need to have an awareness that what we're doing is the wrong thing. We need to think again to bring our agenda into line with his. To review our options for living, not just as we did when we first turned to Christ, although we certainly did it then, I hope, but now every day. Are you prepared to review your agenda in the light of this? If so, the process of bringing it into focus, is metanoia, thinking again, seeing like the disciples did, that everything has changed. It's frightening, isn't it? Because we have to change and go on changing in the light of his resurrection. It's much more comfortable to stay where we are. But we have to bring our economics, our sexuality, our relationships before him and think again. Just begin to imagine what might happen if everyone in this church this morning went out into the world tomorrow radically to think again and to bring the risen Christ and his rule and his victory and his kingship into every situation you face tomorrow morning and through the week. Why aren't we more overwhelmed by his love for us? Why don't we spend more time with him on our own, in prayer, in Bible reading, in time with other Christians with whom we can share in an open and honest, non-critical way 
recognising in every situation we face that he is there before we got there, waiting to share his victory with us. Then, as we do this, and as we come to him in repentance and faith again and again, we can know him better and are empowered by his spirit to love him more, to reflect in our lives, in the world around, something of his love, of his majesty, of his kingship. And in his kingship, we can, in Paul's words here in verse 17, reign in life through the man Christ Jesus. When Eugene Peterson got to this verse in translating his wonderful translation, The Message, he almost burst a gasket in trying to get words to express this wonderful meaning. And he says in verse 17, uh, his translation is this, If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you understand the breathtaking recovery which life, sovereign life, makes in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, that's grace, this grand setting everything right, hyphenated, that's justification, that the one man Jesus Christ provides. Can you imagine, he says? When God created Adam, he created him in his image. And one of the things which makes us different from the animal creation is that he created us for relationship. <coughs> he created us to love. Being a follower of Jesus is primarily that. Yes, we have to believe about Jesus. We have to know about him. But that is nothing uh, in comparison with knowing him more deeply and loving him more by day, day by day. So I ask again this morning, as we've said in the baptism service, do you believe and trust in one God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit? Are you experiencing day by day the indwelling, transforming power of that Holy Spirit? Are you becoming more like Jesus as the days go by, assured of his acceptance of you, this grand setting everything right, overwhelmed by his grace, this wildly extravagant gift of life to us? He longs that you should be victorious in his forgiveness, in his power, in his strength, in his victory, in his kingship. So that we can say with John Wesley, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Let's pray. Our Father God, as we come to you and thank you for the way in which Jesus went to the end for us so that we could share in his kingship, so that we could live victorious Christian lives which confound the world because they see in us the transforming power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to spend time with you. Help us to be honest with you. Help us to be ready to change with you. And help us more than anything else to be totally given to you 
in all we think and say and do this week. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.